Alright, and welcome to the Rory's Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, and this is episode 6, looking at the July 2000 pay-per-views from the WWF and WCW, Fully Loaded and Bash at the Beach, respectively. Today's show is the first of our listener request shows, uh, where I said that anyone leaving us a five-star review on iTunes could select a subject matter for a show, and a big thanks to Andy, aka RoydRage87 on Twitter, who was one of the first people to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and he has selected today's shows, so thank you very much, shout out, and just to let everyone know that we do still have three shows up for grabs, so if you leave us a review on iTunes and let me know, you will be able to select the two shows to go head-to-head. The second of our five-star review shows will be dedicated to Mark, a good friend of mine, uh, and he has selected the Goldberg title win on Nitro and the same evening's Raw. So obviously anyone wanting to get on board with that, please do go over to iTunes and leave us a review. Um, Also, feel free to share us on Twitter and try and get more people talking about the show. The response so far has been really good, but there's always room for improvement. To give everyone a rundown as to where things stand in our timeline currently, July 2000 in the WWF the heavyweight title is with The Rock, Val Venus is the Intercontinental Champion, Edge and Christian hold the tag team titles, Dean Malenko has the light heavyweight championship, Stephanie McMahon is the women's champion, Eddie Guerrero is the European champion, and Steve Blackman is the hardcore champion. As you can see there's a lot of belts at this time. Now on the other side of the fence WCW has Jeff Jarrett holding their world title. Obviously, he jumped ship from the WWF, not getting the main event push he felt he deserved and was getting it here. The Cruiserweight Championship was with Hoover Tude Guerrera. The Hardcore title was around the waist of Big Vito. The Tag Team Championships were with the perfect event, Sean Stasiak and Chuck Palumbo, and Scott Steiner was holding the United States title on his way up the card. Bash at the Beach was held on July 9 in 2000 and drew a 0.22 buy rate and Fully Loaded was held on July 23rd, 2000 and drew a 1.04 buy rate. Big difference there in the two shows so you can see sort of where the scales are tipping at this point in time. Now as is customary on the show we have flipped the coin and Bash at the Beach is going to be the first one up today but before I get started on a rundown of the show I have asked a couple of people to send in some thoughts on the shows. Um, Sean Long has sent in his thoughts on Bash at the Beach so I'm going to insert some of his thoughts here before I get on with the rundown. Uh, let's get to it. So how did I get into wrestling? Well, ever since I can remember, okay, we li- I live in the UK, so we didn't have Monday Night Nitro or Monday Night Raw. We always had Friday Night Nitro or Friday Night Raw. Okay? I can remember being, being young, my mum introduced me to it. I don't know why, but we'd always watch Nitro on a Friday night. So I'd stay up a little later, and then I'd record it for the next day to watch it over and over again. That was 18 years ago, and heck. I'm still hooked on it. My favourite wrestler was always Sting. Don't know why, but I think he was just a flamboyant character, the large and the life personality that he always had. I don't quite know what got me hooked onto wrestling, but I think it's the more large and life characters and the whole spectacle performance and show. They're like real su- real superheroes. It's only been the past five or six years where I've really delved behind the curtain, so to say, 
So a couple of weeks back, I contacted Liam, praising him on, on his podcast and how well he's been doing. And I said to him, I'd love to be able to give you a helping hand, you know, maybe jump in a little bit and give you some thoughts and reviews and some bits. And that's when he said to me he was going to be reviewing Bash at the Beach 2000. So here's my comments on, as we all know, the one thing that only ever mattered about Bash at the Beach that year was the Vince Russo work shoot promo that no one's got hope in hell to understand. The World Heavyweight title match from this pay-per-view was Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, against Hope Hogan. But it was halfway through the card. Come on, even for WCW, that is a bit odd. Then we hear Michael Buffer give his multi-million dollar average or above average introduction into the match. Jeff Jarrett's music hits for about a minute or so. All we see is pans of the crowd, which, to be fair, it did look quite full, but no Jeff Jarrett. Then we see Vince so the man himself, walk down towards the ring. And then closely followed behind Vince so is Jeff Jarrett, while Vince so is now standing in the corner. Then we get the NWO music play, and Hulk Hogan comes out towards the ring. Looking like always, as a massive pop. We then get the commentary team, who then confirm to us that Hulk Hogan and Vince so do not get along one bit. As Hogan gets into the ring, Jeff Jarrett walks away and walks back up the ramp. Hogan then asks for a mic to cut a promo on Jeff Jarrett saying he's going to powerbomb him through the ring for his good friend Kevin Nash. You know something Jeff Jarrett? You are the chosen one because I have chosen you to powerbomb your ass through this match for my brother Big Sexy. So come on down and get your ass kicked Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett then returns to the ring with a face of thunder. You can clearly tell he's not happy about what he's about to do. He enters the ring, bell sounds, and lay down. Hogan then looks at him, clearly confused about what's going on. He looks back at Russo, who's now kneeling on the apron, shouting at Hogan. At this point, I was unable to make out what Russo was saying to Hogan, but it's probably something along the lines of, this is what you wanted, so do it. Russo then proceeds to walk around the ring, stands up in the apron with a belt, throws it on the floor towards Hogan and then he proceeds to walk back up the ramp through the curtain and this is where Hogan then turns to the announcer and, and he asks for a microphone Russo, what a, what a return Is this your deal Russo? Wow That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this wow. Hogan then puts his foot on Jeff Jarrett One, two, three Bell sounds, Jeff Jarrett jumps up, unhappy, and walks straight to the back. No connection with Hogan at all. Hogan, who's clearly pissed off at what's just happened, picks up the belt and storms on, and a bit of rubbish thrown into the ring. And so, I've done some digging to see if I can find any truth behind what really happened that day. Here are some of Vince Russo's comments. He'd been into a booking committee meeting, and they all decided that the person they wanted to leave the title that night was Booker T. So Russo had then struggled to find out a way how he was going to get that to happen. So after listening to Sean's comments about WCW and the Vince Russo Hulk Hogan issue at the time, it struck me as a question I should be asking him really as to why he stuck with WCW um, seeing crap like this go on. So I did ask him that question and here was his response. Why did I stick with WCW? Well, it's like a favourite football team really. You don't, just because they're having a bad spell don't mean that you're going to just give up and jump shit. You know, everyone goes and has their good seasons, 
and they're bad, bad seasons. Unfortunately, for WCW, their bad season was their final season. But nevertheless, when it was good, it was fantastic. So that's why I stuck by them for the whole time. So there you have it, a first hand account of someone watching WCW at the time and what they saw, how they saw it all go down. Um, sticking by your football team is an analogy I can definitely get with as a lifelong Manchester City supporter. We've been through thin and thinner before enjoying the glory years of the last five or six years or so. So much respect to Sean and thank you very much for the comments. Uh, without any further ado, let's get on to the rundown. As I said earlier, WCW is up first, so let's get to it. Show, show, chosen one. Bash at the Beach was coming to us from Daytona Beach, Florida, in front of a crowd of 6,572, and the show opens up with the cat jumping out of a limo and tells his driver to go and tell the misfits in action and the filthy animals that they would be barred for ringside in the Cruiserweight title match upcoming, and then we hear some strange Kung Fu-style music coming from seemingly over the top of the camera, and we have three ninja-looking gentlemen jumping out and trying to beat up the cat. After doing a little bit of quick research, I realised this was the Young Dragons, uh, but they are unsuccessful in beating up the cat, who grabs a hold of all three and swiftly kicks them all in the bollocks. I'm also a little bit sad as I see these three ninjas jump out onto the screen, realising that the New Blood Rising guys pretty much stole my joke in advance when they took Rocky, Colton, Tom Tom off the table for me to use in this point. We then get a strange recap slash entrance video package for the Hulk Hogan Jeff Jarrett match and the Kevin Nash Goldberg match for Scott's, uh, Scott Hall's contract. Sorry. When we do get to ringside, we see our commentary team are Tony Schiavone, Scott Hudson, and Mark Madden all donned in their best Hawaiian shirts. And then out come the filthy animals. Um, the first one I spot standing out like a sore thumb is actually Disco Inferno wearing his best Lakers Kobe Bryant jersey and the commentators refer to Disco Inferno as the lyrical gangster. Scratching my head, I had no idea that he went from BGs to Tupac. Um, WCW aficionados will have to fill me in on how that went down. And letting us all know that the transformation wasn't a raging success, Conan gets in and does his usual entrance, the Viva La Rasa and so forth. And Disco Inferno butting in like his best Billy Gunn to Conan's road dog gives us a great Word to your mother. The MIA then come out with Hoovertude and pretty quickly all the groups are sent to the back so we can have the match which is Hoovertude Guerrero up against Lieutenant Loco aka Chavo Guerrero for Hoovertude's Cruiserweight title. Before any real action has happened in the match Mark Madden's off to a flyer for my first ever WCW pay-per-view of the era saying can't we just leave Tigress and Major Guns out here so they can take their tops off or something? It is pay-per-view classy gentleman. Scott Hudson chimes in with its wrestling and then Mark Madden instantly becomes the bane of my existence saying it's sports entertainment Scotty boy. 
Tony Schiavone, not to be out-douchebagged, gives us a reply of, the bell is sounded in this opening sports entertainment bout. What a tool. We get a decent little start, some good chops by Chavo and a few atomic drops before uh, Hoovy gets to the outside and starts stalling. Chavo comes out with a pretty cool looking springboard splash as Mark Madden calls Hoovy the juice away champion, which the other two commentators sandbag as well as they can. My only thought was if there was really a juice away championship, it'd probably be around the waist of Scott Steiner. We get the action back inside, and Chavo does hit a nice power slam for a two count. Um, so good quick reversals, and then a double clothesline sends both men down. Uh, before too long, we do end up back on the outside, where Hoovertude waits for Chavo to come off the top with a huge crossbody block from the inside out. Uh, before the filthy animals in masks come out, looking really stupid, um, Hoover gets a roll up for a two count and a huge leg shot from over the top rope to the floor. We get a good splash off the top rope springboard style and a running powerbomb for a two count. Also see one of the few successful hits of the Dominator in wrestling history before Hoover gives us his finest people's elbow. Nothing makes you look more small time like a opening card guy impersonating the other team's big uh, main event player. To show us just how fake wrestling is, the MIA come out in the exact same masks that the Filthy Animals came out in earlier. Um, Obviously, they both went to the same store and bought the same masks, because how else would the other one know what they were planning? The action is still pretty good, though, as a series of reversals on the inside of the ring lead to Chavo hitting a reverse Falcon Arrow-type move, which was really cool for a two. And Hoovy gets back on the offense with a Hoovy driver, but Chavo gets his foot on the ropes. We're coming to the closing sequence now, and Chavo lands a pretty sick-looking Tornado DDT, gets the 1-2-3 in a decent opener, a little overbooked for my liking. If they'd just given them 10 minutes and let them go, it could have been something special, uh, but not bad for what it was. We go backstage to the cat in his office now. Um, the young dragons are in again, but they're sent packing pretty quickly. And then Jeff Jarrett storms in with a large woman in a Viking outfit. Someone let me know what that was all about. And he demands to know where Hogan is. Um, this begins a storyline for the evening of Hulk Hogan not being in the building for the title shot. Out next comes Big Vito with the hardcore title. He gets on the mic and cuts a pretty poor promo, basically saying that he's got a mystery opponent coming and he'll take on anyone. Um, that anyone turns out to be screaming Norman Smiley with Ralphus, who is wearing a really lovely midriff-style top that on the back says, just say no to crack, just above his exposed ass crack. Lovely stuff. But wanting to tuck into this match is quickly abrupt abruptly stopped as Tony Schiavone informs me that hardcore matches in WCW have to start in the backstage area before coming to the ring. Really? That was a rule? And I thought making a game for the PlayStation about backstage uh, fights without a ring was crazy, but to actually put it on pay-per-view? Who knew? Backstage we get some average brawling as the commentators have informed us this is a two-on-one handicap match. Um, the big wiggle comes out pretty early from Smiley before um, Vito takes over control on Norman and Ralphus. Ralphus can barely walk. WCW had no business putting him in matches. Whoever thought up the idea of Ralphus being a wrestler should never work in wrestling ever again, and I'm not overstating that at all. Um, the other thing is, when you've got a two-on-one match and the one's on offense, typically he doesn't move while an opponent sells, then he doesn't move on the other one. But when he hits Ralphus, Ralphus doesn't actually know how to sell, so he just stands there looking like a buffoon while Vito's hitting Norman Smiley and he could interject at any time but he doesn't. Vito ends up tossing Norman Smiley into an elevator and supposedly pressing the right button combination to send him up uh, before hitting Ralphus in the balls with a baseball bat which seems a little harsh and then dragging him towards the ring. 
Thankfully, it doesn't last too much longer as Vito has his biggest fight of the night trying to set up a table and managed to keep it up on one broken leg with Ralphus laying on it, which was actually reasonably impressive, before hitting him with a splash through the table and mercifully getting the 1-2-3 to retain his title. Now, after a series of tweets backwards and forwards with another one of our listeners, Richie, on Twitter, we decided to come up with a new scoring system for what will be the worst match of any episode. This one's obviously going to take the cake, and we're going to give it the hammerlocks out of 10. If you flash back to the Bunkhouse Stampede episode, and remember Bobby Eaton putting on a series of hammerlocks through a match, I I believe he got up to 10. Um, One hammerlock is going to be a reasonably dull affair. Up to 10 hammerlocks, which is pull my eyes out regret ever doing a podcast which was I think the comment I made at that time anyway to not wander off track too much this one is going to score a pretty high nine hammerlocks out of ten I'm not sure this could have been any worse the only way it could be worse would be if they gave them a longer runtime. so well done for putting on a nearly totally shit match We then go backstage to Goldberg, who cuts a little bit of a promo with Scott Hall's contract in his pocket, and then we jump cut over to Kevin Nash being interviewed by Mean Gene, who cuts a reasonably quiet, intense promo, a little bit sweary, but not too bad, before cutting back for a recap of the Daphne and Miss Hancock feud. Uh, Miss Hancock obviously became Stacey Keebler later on in WCW WWF, and the recap video shows us that they're fighting over David Flair. At this point, my notes say that I really need a break from this pay-per-view, but out walks Stacey Keebler, and I think better of having the break when I see what she's wearing. She's out with David Flair, who's wearing his best tuxedo as though he's about to get married. This is a wedding gown match where the winner will strip the wedding gown off the other one, but Stacey's not really wearing a wedding gown. She's wearing what you would hope your wife has under a wedding gown on the first night of the honeymoon. Um, They start making out in the ring as Daphne runs out in a horrible black dress. I'd really not want to be getting married to her in that and hits a low blow on David Flair to get us started. Stacey does manage to get on the offense and hit the lovely uh, chick flipping elbow in the corner uh, before giving the ref a good slap. Um, Daphne gives the ref a slap as well, and then Stacy pulls the pants off the ref, and it's revealed that his referee shirt's actually tucked into his underwear. Classy look. Daphne, not wanting to be one-upped, rips the clothes off David Flair. He goes to attack Daphne himself, but Crowbar comes out to make the save. He then, for some strange reason, pulls off his own pants before hitting a reverse suplex on David Flair. Stacy Keebler then asks for some music and begins to strip and dance because this match never intended to make any sense to anyone. We pretty much end this whole match-slash-angle with a cake fight with everyone involved getting some cake in the face at ringside. Not sure what the point of this was, other than to get Stacey Keebler out looking hot. Backstage, the cat's musing about what's going to happen with Hulk Hogan as the Kung Fu music hits again, and we see the dragons are hiding around the area, and the commentators speculate about Hulk Hogan's whereabouts as we see the technicians at ringside mopping up the cake. This leads us to our next match, which is for the WCW Tag Team Titles. The perfect event, the champions up against Chronic, Brian Clark and Brian Adams, a.k.a. Adam Bomb and Crush from the WWF. The perfect event come out first to Mr. Perfect's theme song, and since I didn't introduce the match with any sort of video package, I momentarily got my hopes up that Kurt Hennig was on his way to ringside, and Chronic come out in a strange black and green lighting affair looking just like the album cover from Dre 2001. Tony Schiavone, doing his best to sound like the whitest man alive, says that they are so fired up like a Chronic. Um, Tony, I'm sure you've never smoked weed, so don't pretend, please. 
The action gets started pretty early and Brian Adams hits a really impressive press slam to the outside. Uh, and we see the referee, he's a really strange looking ginger boy. Interesting to me anyway. Back in the ring, Brian Clark hits a really cool looking rock bottom suplex type slam. We get Brian Adams in for a double team shoulder block, a big boot, and then a really cool looking full Nelson slam as well. Lumbo appears to be down for the count after this offense, but Stasiak does get in and save the count for us. Perfect event, managed to get a double team of their own, getting Brian Adams over the top rope, but it was botched pretty badly. It took him an age to get over that rope. And we get a double team and a chair on Adams on the outside. On the inside, we get a really sloppy looking sleeper by Chuck Palumbo, who was still pretty new at this point, but a really good looking flying elbow by Sean Stasiak. At this point, I do notice they've got the really cool WCW logo on the canvas. Anyone that played some of the wrestling games on the early PlayStation or N64 will remember. Um, Smackdown had this as well at one point, and it does look really cool having the event logo in the middle of the canvas. Adams and Stasiak hit each other with a, a simultaneous clothesline, and they both go down. Before we get the hot tagged, Brian Clark, on his way into the ring, he slips going for a clothesline, but he does recover. Hits a pretty cool-looking pump handle slam before being nailed by a DDT from Chuck Palumbo. Stasiak comes back in, and we get a double team on Brian Clark before a double flapjack, and Brian Adams makes a save before the pin can be done. Adam hits a cool-looking F5 slash DDT type move, the crowd fire up with a little bit of a chronic chant. We get a double team, double big boots, a la Kane and The Undertaker, before they hit high times, which is a double choke slam again, a la Kane and The Undertaker. Palumbo makes a save, so we don't have new champions just yet. And they hit the high times on Chuck, as the commentators make some really bad weed puns. Give it a rest, guys. We then get a powerbomb type doomsday device uh, for the 1, 2, 3 and new champions. Looked really cool as one lifted him up for the powerbomb, the other came off the top rope with a clothesline. Um, some good moves, but the match itself was plotting with no real story or selling. Um, the hot tags sort of came and went. Um, it, it wasn't too bad, but it wasn't anything special. Backstage, more cat. Backstage, more cat, more ninja music, more Jeff Jarrett nothing of note. But then something that piques my interest comes next as Canyon takes on Booker T. Um, Canyon comes out dressed as DDP. Uh, they were calling him Positively Canyon, so must have been a WCW storyline at the time. Nothing that I can remember specifically, though he did team with DDP when they came into the WWF. Then Booker comes out, and I realise that the Zodiac probably sings Booker T's theme song in WCW because it's just yes, 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 no, no, no. Seems pretty clear to me. Booker T's in his black outfit that was actually really easy to recreate on the last SmackDown game that he wasn't in. I think it was just Bring It for memory. Uh, the first one on the PlayStation 2. And we do get a pretty decent Booker T chant as well as we get off to a quick start with a really good looking spin kick. A good drop kick from Booker and then he rips off Canyon's DDP shirt and tosses it out to the crowd which also gets a good reaction. Canyon ends up on the outside as well as Booker T goes and picks up the Dallas Page book that Canyon's been carrying around. And as he picks it up, a brick drops out of it, showing that when he's been hitting people with the book, that it's been loaded a la IRS's briefcase. Booker T follows him to the outside and stays in control with a little bit of outside brawling before coming back in and hitting a pretty decent clothesline off the top rope. Canyon does eventually get back on the offense, and we have a really cool spot where Booker T's lay underneath the bottom turnbuckle, sort of stomach to the ring post, and Canyon hits a really cool drop kick to his back, which was pretty impressive. I've never seen that before. We also see a pretty cool looking superplex type move from the middle of the ropes, which was interesting, before we end up with Booker T back on offense, courtesy of a really nice looking power slam. 
Canyon puts a chair in between the top and middle ropes and no disqualification as that's attempted to be used. Uh, he does hit a really cool looking fallout Alabama t uh, slam, which was another cool thing. They, they're calling him the innovator of offense at this time and it's easy to see why. But then he does go and spoil it all with a reverse Boston Crab. If you think the Boston Crab, think the person's actually not lay on their stomach, they lay on their back. And he's just sort of stood over him holding him his, his leg. So it's kind of just like setting up for a, a hamstring stretch at football training that you do in partners. It just looked pathetic. Booker T eventually whips Canyon into the chair that's on in between the ropes mentioned earlier and hits his cool looking spine buster. As the referee takes a chair out the ring, Canyon takes advantage and hits Booker T with the book, gets a two count, obviously the brick's not in there, it would have been three, before Booker T decides to go into his special meter and get the spinner rooney, the sidekick, the axe kick and the bookend, which all leads him to a two count only. He goes up to the top rope, Canyon manages to distract the referee and out comes Jeff Jarrett who hits Booker T with a guitar while he's up top and Canyon hits a, a pretty poor looking diamond cutter off the top rope and picks up the one, two, three. Easily best match of the night so far. It was pretty decent. Backstage we see Mike Awesome hitting on the girl in the Viking outfit because get it, he's a fat chick thriller. Just dumb. And Mark Madden again proves himself to be a charming, charming man. As he says, the bigger cushion, the better pushing. Lovely stuff. Thankfully, though, that's not nearly the most offensive thing he says for the night, because he manages to tell us that Scott Steiner nearly broke Medusa in half the other night. He's on a roll. And just as a side note, I'm pretty difficult to offend. I don't really get offended by anything. I've got one of them senses of humour. But I find it odd that this that a company the size of WCW let this go on pay-per-view um, and just let him run wild and say whatever crap came to his head. All this talk about Mike Awesome and Scott Steiner's preference in ladies, of course, brings us to Scott Steiner defending his US title against Mike Awesome. And as Steiner's coming out, uh, Mark Madden continues to make comments about Medusa. Medusa, Medasia, I tell a lie. Um, and it's at this point that I realise that Mark Madden is just a really uglier, slimier, fatter version of Jerry Lawler. And when you consider some of the charges that have been levelled against Jerry Lawler in the past, all alleged of course, that takes some doing. Well done, Mark. This match actually starts outside the ring as Scott Steiner jumps Mike Awesome on the outside uh, before being backdropped into the crowd. And Mike Awesome does a dive over the rail within the first minute. Um, a problem that's been labelled with Mike Awesome by many people in the past that he could do these amazing high spots but he would just break them out straight away with no real storytelling behind it. Steiner hits Mike Awesome with a pretty poor uh, chair shot on the outside after a bit of a crowd brawl before they do manage to get back into the ring and Steiner hits a clothesline and elbow drop but sadly for me no push-ups afterwards. Uh, he then goes under the offence and hits a huge belly-to-belly -belly from the top rope no less and then hits a pretty nice looking backbreaker as well. Awesome doesn't stay being beaten down for too long though as he manages to drop Steiner onto the ropes before we end up back on the outside with some more outside brawling, some chair shots, some ball shots, um, pretty much every shortcut in the book. And I'm wondering how this is all getting by the referee, but we're informed that the cat has informed all the referees to relax the rules a little bit, so at least there's a bit of logic there, that doesn't hurt. We get a splash from over the ropes to the inside by Mike Awesome before getting a clothesline back over the top rope. Cat wanders down to ringside for reasons that aren't clear straight away before we see another overhead belly to belly by Scott Steiner which pretty much drops Mike Awesome right on his head. Really sick looking. 
Steiner then goes to lock in the Steiner recliner and it's clear now why the cat's come out because apparently he's banned that move. He stops Steiner being able to do it. Mike Awesome gets up and hits two low blows on Steiner because one wasn't enough and a pretty decent looking Alabama slam for a two count. He goes up top and hits a pretty decent splash off the top for another two count. Uh, as I'm scratching my head a little bit wondering why they didn't mention the ban on the recliner before the match and help build up some of the drama. We get a ref bump and then the cat comes in looking to hit Scott Steiner with a kick but Steiner gets out of the way and he blasts Mike Awesome. We then get a belly to belly suplex on the cat and Steiner goes for the pin on Awesome getting a two count. The cat gets back on the microphone saying that he's not going to allow the recliner but Steiner puts it on anyway. And the cat calls for the bell and strips Scott Steiner of the title. I don't really understand the logic behind this. If Steiner didn't care about the belt, why did he bother coming out for the match? If he did care about the belt enough to take chair shots, crowd brawling, low blows, then why didn't he just try and beat Mike Awesome another way if he knew he was going to be stripped of the title? It makes zero sense. Anyway, Steiner nails the cat and then hits a really sick looking T-bone suplex on Mike Awesome as the cat legs it backstage and Scott Steiner celebrates. What the fuck? He's an absolute idiot. This match itself wasn't too bad. There was good spots. Again, not great psychology and a lot of shortcuts, but just atrocious booking, which is becoming a bit of a theme for the night. We are then sent to a graveyard for the graveyard match, pitting the demon up against Vampiro. I'm not looking forward to this at all. Uh, we start with the demon wandering around the graveyard with referee Charles Robinson looking for Vampiro. Vampiro does eventually appear jumping out of a tree and takes control. We see some lame brawling in a grave uh, before Vampiro knocks the demon down and drags off Asia who was accompanying the demon uh, somewhere it's not really clear um, and there's a little debate between the demon and Charles Robinson about what happened uh, we see that Vampire is actually out at a swamp and he drags in the demon and they try to drown each other good stuff we go wandering again and we get a lame spot where the vampire comes out of a coffin and spits some mist in the eyes of the demon before hitting him with a big ball of what looks like dried up soap powder but the common jet potatoes are shooting here it was a tombstone he hit him with and puts him in the coffin he then throws the coffin into the grave and leaves and apparently that's the end of it. It was pretty lame. Uh, nothing really much to this. Didn't tickle my fancy. Uh, next up, we've got Mean Gene Oakland with Shane Douglas, who cuts a really crap promo. Um, I guess it's true what they say, that if he's not swearing, then he can't cut a decent promo. And we see an advert for a competition where you can win a trip to be Goldberg's manager for the night. That would have been pretty cool back in the day. Next up we get Buff Bagwell up against Shane Douglas and first out is Buff Daddy to this bad boy. Before the action really gets started, Buff Bagwell manages to start up a franchise sucks chant and get the crowd going along with it for a minute. And Shane Douglas, we notice, has got some really cool looking Ultimate Warrior tassels on his boots. The match pretty much goes straight to the outside, and I notice a blurred sign in the crowd straight away uh, before Shane Douglas immediately goes to a low blow. Like, shortcuts two of them in the first minute, outside brawling and a low blow. Goes for a pile driver on the outside, which is reversed, and the crowd, uh, the outside brawling continues. Shane Douglas manages to crotch Buff Bagwell on the ring post, and punch a chair into the face of Buff Bagwell as well, before finally getting back in the ring for some action in there. And Tori Wilson comes out, so yet another shortcut already. 
She slaps Shane Douglas, allowing Buff Bagwell to get the roll up, but he only gets a two count. He then hits a bit of a Vader bomb off the ropes for another two count. Tori gets up and kisses Buff Bagwell, and then as he turns around, hits him with a low blow, allowing Douglas to hit a fisherman suplex for a two count. Buff gets back on the offense, hitting a double arm DDT for a two count, sorry. Uh, Buff goes up to the top rope and Tori Wilson gets on the apron to distract him in what was a really serious contender for Dick Move of the Week. He just fucks her straight off the apron. I mean, no care whatsoever for her well-being. Uh, pretty poor form there by Buff. I'm glad Hurricane smacked him upside the head with a water bottle. But the distraction does allow Shane Douglas to get back up and hit a pretty cool-looking jawbreaker off the ropes on the Buff for the three count and the win. This match took absolutely every shortcut in the book from the first 30 seconds onwards. It was pretty shit, and Tori Wilson and Shane Douglas kiss in the ring afterwards. Um, the obvious thing there being the swerve. She came out and got into Shane Douglas's face early on to confuse Buff and make him think that she was against Douglas, and then turning on Buff mid-match. So, you know, what could have been weeks and weeks worth of a storyline crammed into about two and a half minutes. Backstage, we see that Hulk Hogan has finally arrived in the building, walking in the back, and Jeff Jarrett is interviewed with Mean Gene, who calls Gene a Jurassic slap-ass, good line, and says that Hulk has lots of enemies from all his years of abuse in WCW, and he's got lots of allies, so that will come in handy. We get a decent video package hyping up the Jeff Jarrett-Hulk Hogan title match, and then we see Michael Buffer coming out to do the introductions, and hearing some of the figures about what he got paid to do this, it's just no wonder WCW went out of business. He literally offered nothing and got paid a mint for it. As the intros are coming for the match, I see a sign in the crowd that says, Hey Jeff, stroke this. Alright mate, like, I'm sure he might do if you ask him nicely, but not my cup of tea. Um, I'm certainly a married man, but if I wasn't and I swung that way, Jeff Jarrett probably still wouldn't be to my liking, each their own though. Jeff Jarrett's music is playing and it actually loops back around before he comes out, and then the trouble begins as Vince Russo walks down the aisle. Sean went through a pretty good play-by-play of this earlier, so I won't go into all the details. Um, it's an incident you really do need to go and watch anyway. Um, I will just say that after all this happens, the commentating was disgusting and just ruined the pay-per-view. It was not a good show anyway, but if anyone back in the day had paid to watch this, if I'd paid to watch this, I'd be disgusted from this point onwards. As they say things like, we know Russo and Hogan have been having a behind-the-scenes battle. Mark Madden says they're deviating from the script. And Hudson informs us that they didn't discuss this part of the show in the production meeting. Madden continues to bury Hogan, saying he got to he got to win the belt, and that's what's important. And then, uh, strangely, a funny little sort of part to all of this, Hogan's walking in the backstage area as Vampiro comes into the arena, and Hogan coming off what was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a pretty heated shoot that's resulted in lawsuits and the whatnot, walks past a completely in-character vampire coming back from the silly graveyard match. Got a real chuckle out of me anyway. In the arena area, sorry, in the ringside area, Vampiro's out and some druids bring out a coffin with the lights out, similar to an angle that you would see for The Undertaker, um, before they point baseball bats at him and they've all got sting masks on, they stuff him into the coffin. This looked really cheesy and something you'd see in a high school play, um, just didn't look professional at all. Backstage, Gene Oakland interviews Goldberg again, who says that after this match, he'll be ripping up Scott Hall's contract once and for all. Then we get part two of the Vince Russo drama who comes out to the ring. Scott Hudson politely informs us this is not Vince Russo, the character coming out. This is Vince Russo, the boss. 
And this is real life fans, Tony tells us. Russo tells us the only reason he came back is for all the guys in the back that are not politicians like Hulk Hogan um, and just runs him down, sticks up for the guys that he's trying to build up, supposedly, in WCW. Um, Russo, whether you're right or you're wrong, I don't want to hear this in the middle of the show. Can you imagine if in the middle of Rocky, um, Sylvester Stallone stopped to tell us that, you know, he really wanted to put this scene together differently, but his opponent for that night didn't want to look weak in the movie, so he had to change the script and then went back in for round two? Nobody would be going to watch those films. It would just piss you off no end. And this is the same thing for wrestling. You know it's not real, but you don't want to have someone come out in the middle of the show and tell you it's not real. Just ruins your enjoyment immediately. So for doing this, Vince Russo, and for not finding a way to do your job and book a bloody show, you are quite clearly taking our dick move of the week for this week's show. The other highlight of this is they tell us that now for the title this evening we'll see Jeff Jarrett facing Booker T. That's awesome. You've just told us how fake it all is and now you're going to put a storyline match on. Well, I'll enjoy that as soon as I can stop thinking about all the other words you've just run out with. Tony Giovanni, of course, tells us this is a shoot and Scott Hudson tells us this is not on their format sheet, this match. Great, so shoot, storyline title match, this is a shoot. Which is it? Just my brain's about to explode. In fact, I'm going to steal the line from the New Blood guys and say that if it come to watching this again, I'd rather blow my brains out. I can't do accents at all. I apologize for that. Anyway, enough rambling. Let's just play the clip and let you decide for yourself. There's only one way for me to do this, and that's for me to tell it like it is. Here we go. All right, we need to hear this. Let's lay out. You know, three weeks ago, I left WCW It's real life here, fans More real than I thought it would Three be Three weeks ago I left WCW and quite frankly, I didn't know if I was going to come back. And the reason I didn't know I was going to come back or not is because from day one that I've been in WCW, I've done nothing, nothing but deal with the bullshit of the politics behind that curtain. The fact of the matter is, I've got a wife, I've got three kids at home, and I really don't need this shit. But let me tell you the reason why I did come back. I came back for every one of the guys in that locker room that week in, week out, bust their ass for WCW. I came back for the Booker T. I came back for every single guy in MIA. I came back for the animals. I came back for Jared. I came back to the guys behind that curtain that give a shit about this company. 
let me tell you who doesn't give a shit about this company. That goddamn politician, Hulk Hogan. Because let me tell you people what happened out here in this ring tonight. All day long, I'm playing politics with Hulk Hogan because Hulk Hogan tonight wants to play his creative control card. And to Hulk Hogan, that meant that tonight in the middle of this ring, when he knew it was bullshit, he beats Jeff Jarrett. Well, guess what? Hogan got his wish. Hogan got his belt and he went the hell home and I promise everybody or else I'll go in the goddamn grave You will never see that piece of shit again Amen But I also I sat out there in the people just like you and I know you paid good money to come here tonight And nobody is gonna be ripped off here tonight So Hulk Hogan now has the WCW belt. And Hulk, let's refer to that as the Hulk Hogan Memorial Belt because from here on in, that belt don't mean shit! Because there will be a new WCW belt and as far as I'm concerned, that belt still belongs to the one guy that busts his ass week in and week out in the middle of this ring. And you people can love him and hate him, but he doesn't screw anybody back there, and that's Jeff Jarrett. Now hold on a minute. Jeff Jarrett is still the official WCW champion, but he will defend that title in this ring tonight. And he will defend that title against the son of a bitch back there who for 14 years has been busting his ass in WCW and can't get a goddamn break because of the Hulk Hogan. two reasons why I'm in this damn stinking business to begin with. So tonight in this ring for the WCW title, two deserving guys, Jarrett and Booker, will compete for the WCW and they'll tear this goddamn out down. And Hogan, you big bald son of a bitch, kiss my ass! Then get a video package for Goldberg and Kevin Nash, and we see Kevin Nash walking backstage, and he asks Scott Steiner to watch his back in this one, but Steiner tells him he's too busy, and Tony Schiavone reminisces about the Outsiders. 
after Nash comes out, Goldberg comes out next, and he's holding a pretty clean-looking contract of Scott Halls, which in the video package we just watched, I've seen him both eat and stuff into Kevin Nash's mouth, so not sure how he's got it in this pristine condition, because it didn't look laminated. There's pretty good crowd heat for this as they stall to start the match up, just giving each other the stare down, that big match feel that you love. They do eventually tie up and Goldberg begins to pound on Nash, but Nash gets back in control with his uh, knees and his usual Kevin Nash offense. Um, and a good little back and forth from here between the two, no one really getting the upper hand before we get a good sidekick from Goldberg. He doesn't stay in control for longer, however, as we do get a decent looking choke slam from Nash on Goldberg before Scott Steiner comes out. Nash hits his sidewalk slam before Goldberg gets back on the upper hand, missing a spear, however, and Nash goes for the powerbomb, but Scott Steiner gets in and nails him. This allows Goldberg to get up and hit the spear, the jackhammer, and pick up the 1-2-3, and Goldberg rips up Scott Hall's contract and leaves. In actual fact, Scott Hall hadn't been seen since about February in 2000, and doing a little bit of research online, the explanation Scott Hall himself gives is that he'd been seeing Brad Siegel's niece. Brad Siegel was a higher up in Turner slash WCW at the time, and apparently had been caught cheating on a, on a European trip, and was never on WCW television after that. Backstage, Gene Oakland interviews Booker T, who says he's not going to waste this opportunity he's been given, and we go back to ringside where Tony Giovanni is just looking royally pissed off, and I can't say I blame him having to try and call this garbage. Uh, he sends it up to Michael Buffer, who now has to introduce a second main event, making me wonder if he got double pay for the evening. The title match gets underway and gets off to a pretty quick start. The crowd noise is cutting in and out a little bit. Not sure if that was uh, original issues on the technical side. I doubt it's a network at the, in this day and age now. Uh, Booker T hits a drop kick, but just barely. Um, a really awkward execution there. But he does come back with a really cool looking sidekick before we end up on the outside for the main event crowd brawl. Jarrett gets on offense on the outside, hitting Booker T with a chair, then throwing him under the commentators, before dragging him back up under the table and hitting a huge pile driver. Back in the ring, Jarrett pounds on Booker T and puts him into a sleeper hold, but Booker T gets out of it and puts on a sleeper of his own. Jarrett gets out of that and goes to the knee and slaps on the figure four leg lock. Booker T does escape, but Jeff Jarrett continues to stay on the knee before Booker T gets back into control with an axe kick and a spinneroonie, followed by the spine buster for a two count, and the crowd starts to warm up and really get behind Booker T. Unfortunately, from there we go to our ref bump. Uh, Booker T takes the belt off Jeff Jarrett, who was looking to hit him with it, nails it with himself and gets a two count. Jeff Jarrett's whipped into a chair for another two count before getting up and hitting a stroke on the referee, and then a low blow onto Booker T. He gets a guitar and heads up to the top rope, uh, jumps off the top rope with the guitar, but Booker T catches him with the bookend. The referee comes to, counts the one, two, three. We have a new champion and Booker T with tears of joy to end the show. My overall thoughts on this match were it's just sad that Booker T's big title win came at this clusterfuck of a show that will never be remembered for what should have been a historic night in his career. He really did deserve this title win, but he deserved to have it happen in much better circumstances. And I get that Russo wanted to put the title on Booker T, um, wanted to have guys like Jarrett and Booker T up in the main event mix, but he should have seen the writing on the wall when he knew what was going to go down with Hogan and either get it sorted before the day or just let the Hogan thing play out and do this on another night, because he really ruined what should have been an awesome night for Booker T. And I know Vince Russo really loves to rag on the Smarks or, you know, the fans that take an interest in the product, but 
for me, that's not really my deal. I may have come across that way reviewing this portion of the show, but I'm one of those people that can get lost in the campiness and cheesiness of wrestling quite easily. I don't have to have everything be a five-star classic. I'm really into the characters. Um, give me something watchable and I'll watch it, but this just wasn't that. Anyway, with all that being said, we still have another show to review. Uh, before I get to my thoughts on Fully Loaded, um, as I said earlier, we do have some thoughts being sent in. The next set of thoughts coming from a long-time personal friend of mine, Mark Lennon, who went back and watched Fully Loaded, a show that he enjoyed when he was younger, just like I did, and has sent me in these thoughts. Mark here. Lee has very kindly invited me along to the Raw is Nitro podcast to share my thoughts on WWF Fully Loaded 2000. When Lee told me this was going to be one of the shows he was reviewing as part of his upcoming episode, two memories instantly came to mind. First was Rikishi's big bump off the top of the cage in his match. And the second was the fact that I watched this on Channel 4, a terrestrial TV station here in the UK and Ireland. This was during their ill-fated two-year spell where they had rights to some of the pay-per-views and took some of the ingenious decisions such as broadcasting ads in the middle of the shows and even showing pay-per-views on tape delay so they had the time to edit out any overly violent or inappropriate scenes. Thankfully, the experiment was a disaster and after the two years, all pay-per-views returned to their rightful home, Sky Sports. This show would have heard during a time when my fandom was at its peak, so I really enjoyed it. But when reviewing it for this week's podcast, I thought it was actually a bit of a mixed bag. I don't want to take up too much of these times, so I'll just quickly go through some things I liked and some that I didn't. First up, opening match really enjoyed. I enjoyed the dynamic of the two teams and their different styles. And there's some really nice spots in it, uh, particularly the triple suplex comes, comes to mind. And uh, I really enjoyed Tess selling for Lita. Although, someone needs to tell Matt Hardy that a second rope leg drop is not a high-risk move, especially when you're getting outdone in the very next match when Alice Snow's going to the top rope and hitting one. Uh, also enjoyed the cage match. Uh, Rikishi got a big pop. He was so over at this time, and it makes you wonder why they decided to turn him heel. Really ruined that man's career, in my opinion. Some nice action in the match, and like I said from the intro... My big takeaway moment from this pay-per-view was Rikishi's big splice from the top. A man that says you got to give him a lot of credit for going and pulling that move. And I also really enjoyed the last man standing match. I thought there was some real good psychology in the match. and It started off well. at a good uh, intense pace, which a sort of grudge match like this really needs, in my, in my opinion. There were also some funny funny moments, when uh, such as when... Triple H had Jericho in the abdominal stretch and he's asking Kyoto to see if he wants to submit, forgetting that it was a last man standing match. And then Kyoto refereeing as if it was a normal match, trying to get a rope break and then trying to stop Triple H from hitting him with uh, the chair. Uh, one point I did notice, and I wonder if anyone else picked up, in the opening package for this match, they, they show a clip from SmackDown where Triple H hits Jericho with, with a pedigree and it's really sloppily taken he, he almost leaves one knee bent so he can land on his knee and I, and I noticed it but didn't think much more of it until during the match Jericho took the pedigree the exact same way very sloppy and I'm wondering if it's just something that he always done that I never picked up on I really enjoyed the main event I thought it was a good back and forward match and I'd done a good job of making Chris Benoit look like a main eventer although it would be a number of years down the line before he finally reached the top it was also good to see a rock match that involved a decent sharpshooter because that man has to give one of the worst sharpshooters in the business. 
I also have to give credit to Shane. I thought he was excellent in this match in the sort of conniving heel role. You know, any, any chance he could get an advantage, he was taking it. I thought he'd done a real good job here, so he did. Um, and I enjoyed the ending. Although, I thought the crowd sort of suspected something was up because they were a bit flat when the bell rang initially. And there actually was a bit of a pop when Benoit was announced as the winner. But, and, but then that was superseded by a bigger pop at the end after the restart and the Rock won. So I really enjoyed that match. Another thing I enjoyed was Bradshaw's promo uh, defending Dallas uh, before the match with Edge and Christian. I had no memory of this from the from first watching the pay-per-view and didn't even know Bradshaw was that good in the mic at this time. I thought it was excellent. It was actually one of my takeaway moments from the second time round. In terms of low points, I really didn't enjoy the Eddie and Saturn match. I was disappointed in it. I mean, these two guys should be able to put on a wrestling classic, but it just didn't happen. Uh, a lot of sloppy moments in the match and also a lot of audible spot calling in one section. I don't know if this was during this time period. Maybe Saturn was a bit worse for a while and wasn't too sure what was going on in the match. Uh, ending was a bit weak as well. You know, I, I didn't feel it needed the interference from Terry. On a similar theme, I also didn't like the fact that we had three matches in a row without a clean finish. I didn't think that was needed as well. Angle and Taker was also disappointing. I mean, this match could have offered so much more, but it was just very poor, so it would. Um, at this time... Taker looked really blown up, you know, really out of shape. And even in the match, Angle didn't get a lot of offense in. I mean, if Taker's in rough shape, I, w- I would have had Angle carry the match. You know, he would have been capable of doing it. I mean, the, the man was a talent, so he was. I wasn't too fussed on the end of the tag title match. The sort of DQ finish was a bit hokey. And the less said about Al Snow and Taz the better. Obviously, other than his sweet top rope drop, uh, leg drop. And finally, I couldn't possibly appear on the Raw as Nitro podcast and not share my dick move of the week, which for this show goes to good old JR. This occurs during the last man standing match when Lawler's calling out Jericho for all the insults. Uh, he throws at Stephanie and he turns to JR and asks how he would like it if it was his wife. And I'm paraphrasing here, but JR snaps and says, Well, King, how would you like it if it was all your wives? Pulling up a man on a live pay per view about having many failed marriages is a poor move. And for that, JR gets my dick move of the week. Thanks very much, Mark, for those thoughts. And to all the other listeners out there, I do apologise for his accent. But no, in a serious note, it has been great to have some thoughts from Mark and from Sean on this show. And I hope you guys have enjoyed that. Do give us some feedback on Twitter as usual. But without any further ado, we move on to Fully Loaded. You scared? Devil without a cause, and I'm back with the beaver hats and Ben Davis slacks. 30 pack of strolls, 30 pack of hoes. No road gain in the propane flows. The chosen ones, I'm the living proof. With the gift of gab from the city of truth. I jabbed and stabbed and not critics back. And I did not stutter when I said that. I'm going black. Rhymes. I went platinum seven times It's still the ill and wanna see us ride I guess because the only God knows why Why, 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 why They call me cowboy I'm a singer in black So throw a finger in the air Let me see where you're at Say, hey, hey Let me hear where you're at Say, hey, hey 
stage, Edge tells Mick Foley that Christian has come down with food poisoning. Uh, Mick's a little bit sceptical about this. And then we see The Undertaker on his motorbike chasing Kurt Angle around the arena. We come back for our second match of the night, which is going to be Taz up against Al Snow. Taz being introduced from the Red Hook section of Brooklyn, New York. Always loved that. And he comes out to a pretty decent pop and looks in really good shape at this point. Al Snow comes out next and he gets pretty much no reaction whatsoever. Uh, Snow attacks early on. This was a quite heated angle where Taz had been coming back uh, from injury and beating people down and Snow was one of his victims. Snow hits a Russian leg sweep, uh, a super kick and a sit-out type spine buster on Taz before Taz manages to catch Al with an Alabama slam type move. Snow gets back on the offense though and gets an elbow, a clothesline and a body slam and the crowd die a death at this point. He does a top rope leg drop that Mark mentioned earlier in his comments um, and still he gets a little bit of response but not much. Then he gets a moonsault for two. It's just really too much Al Snow at this point and Taz being booked as the killer um, was what the crowd wanted to see and we get a boring chant. Al gets his uh, locked in headbutts where he hooks the arms uh, but Taz manages to finally get back under control with a chop block, some punches and I'm just sat here scratching my head wondering where the suplexes are. Uh, he goes to a toe hold and some forearms uh, but Snow gets back on the offense with some kicks. Finally Taz breaks out a T-bone suplex. Then he puts on the Taz mission which is broken up twice before he locks it in a third time and gets Snow to tap out one suplex the whole match. Backstage, the MTs have a quick look over Christian, a um, bit of a flashlight into the eyes, and he declares that he can't go, so some really professional medical advice given there. And we see Dr. Harvey Whippleman delivering flowers to Stephanie McMahon in a little uh, sort of back dressing room with Triple H, who eventually reads the card and finds out that all the bunches of flowers in the room have been coming from Kurt Angle. Back to the ring we go for the European Championship match where Eddie Guerrero is taking on Saturn. Uh, Eddie comes out first with China to a pretty decent pop, and Saturn comes out with Terry, who is hiding behind him from China. She does, however, leg it down the aisle, nail Saturn, and grab a hold of Terry, but Saturn makes a save and Terry gets out of dodge. Early on in the match, Guerrero gets on the offense with a really nice looking back suplex and a rolling splash over the top rope before Saturn takes a powder, but he doesn't get any respite on the outside because China nails him. And Guerrero hits a really nice looking top rope Rana, which gets good response from the crowd. Um, unlike the earlier episode where I saw him doing similar moves against Dean Malenko and the crowd sat on their hands. On the outside of the ring, China throws Saturn into the steps, who takes a really silly bump, sort of popping up, then jumping backwards. And Guerrero continues the aerial, aerial assault with some really nice dives on Saturn. Saturn does get back on the offense eventually, hitting a really cool electric chair uh, move where he spins Guerrero off his shoulders into a powerbomb. Looked really cool uh, before Eddie then counters back with a really decent looking Tornado DDT of his own. And we have a little blood trickling from the top of the head of Saturn, which looks like it came off the DDT. Saturn dominates for a little while with a reverse suplex and a nice looking powerbomb before missing a moonsault and Guerrero nails a nice looking brain buster. Uh, he goes up for the frog splash, Saturn avoids it and Guerrero rolls through as he is wont to do. Somehow the action ends up back on the outside and Saturn manages to clothesline China through an announce table. Never seen that before. Terry comes out, hits a low blow on Guerrero. Saturn goes up for the Macho Man style elbow drop off the top and he gets a three count and we have a new European champion. Not too bad, but I did expect better from these guys. At least the crowd were into it though. Backstage, Mick Foley catches Edge and Christian out as they're packing to leave. Uh, Christian runs back to the toilet pretending to vomit, but Foley looks over the top of the cubicle and notices that it's fake. And then we go to Michael Cole interviewing The Undertaker. He starts with a dumb line saying, 
Mick Foley's medical opinion regarding Edge and Christian, but I'm interested in The Undertaker's medical opinion regarding Kurt Angle. Undertaker gives it the respect it deserves. Before he notices on a monitor, Angle is stealing his bike, and he goes off to chase Kurt Angle, the highlight of which calling him a little bitch. Back to ringside, and we've got the tag team title match, Edge and Christian defending against the APA. Edge and Christian come out first and run down Dallas insulting the sports team and the JFK assassination and getting some cool arsehole chants from the crowd. They are interrupted before they can do the five-second pose, though, and the acolytes storm to the ring. Bradshaw stops Farouk going after Edge and Christian, gets a microphone, and cuts an awesome promo. We get the brawl to the outside pretty early on, and the crowd are really into this, which is cool. And as the action does get back inside, Edge and Christian set up for a poetry in motion type move, uh, where Christian would come off the back of Edge with the sort of crossbody into the opponent in the corner. But Bradshaw catches him, goes up to the second rope, and hits the super SOS slam. The Acolytes double team on Edge for a while, a uh, highlight of which is a massive powerbomb from Bradshaw, always had one of the best powerbombs in the business for my money. But when he attempts a second one, Christian comes off the top rope and hits him with a missile dropkick. Edge and Christian take over control for a while, leading to the crowd to go into huge USA chants. But when they put Bradshaw on the top rope and look for a double superplex, he blocks it, knocking them both down and hits a decent looking uh, shoulder block off the top to Edge and makes a hot tag to Farouk, who comes in and gets some good offense with a nice looking power slam and Farouk's patented spine buster. Christian breaks up the pin at two, however, and ends up copying the clothesline from hell from Bradshaw. And the finishing sequence sees Farouk actually hit the Dominator on Christian, something you didn't see very often, but Edge breaks up the pin with the title belt, leading to a disqualification. This was a, a short match, but hot crowd, fast paced, and it's a shame about the DQ ending because it was really starting to get good. We then cut away to WWF New York, where Big Boss Man's on assignment on this evening. He's checking IDs of people at the bar and pinches one of their beers. Well done. Backstage, Stephanie and Triple H continue to argue, and The Undertaker continues to chase Kurt Angle. We then come back to the ringside area for the Intercontinental title match, as JR would say it's Rakishi up against Val Venus. Rikishi comes out and we get a quick video recap, and Val's out with Trish Stratus to some really crappy techno music was awful. One of the things I don't miss about the early 2000s whatsoever techno music. We get a re really decent start to this match with um, Val going for the escape as often as he can, Rikishi throwing Val into the cage as often as he can. Val does manage to get a chop block on Rikishi. Um, Rikishi gets back on offense, goes for the stink face, which Val blocks with a low blow. And Val hits a decent clothesline on Rikishi, who uses the patented Rikishi bump, as I call it, off the clothesline. As they climb up to the top rope, uh, Val manages to knock Rikishi off, and then from sort of center of the rope, does a really cool-looking bouncing elbow drop onto Rikishi. The match slowed down a little bit here, a bit too soon for my liking, but it was a cage match, so, you know, they can sell the effects of going into the cage, I guess. Rikishi eventually gets back under control, and Val Venus is busted open, hits a Samoan drop, and he's sort of patented bum-bump where he just sits down on them and JR tells us that he had an asphalt injury. He gets a bonsai drop for a two count and Trish throws the door into his face allowing Val to get up and hit the money shot which was always a cool name for a finisher. This gets him a two count because pinfalls are valid in this match but then we see Lita come out to give Trish Stratus the whipping back with the belt 
and we end up with Val Venus on the ground and Rikishi on top of the cage and another classic wrestling logic moment where all he has to do is get out of the cage and retain his title but the law of the crowd proves too much for him and he comes off the top of the cage with no word of a lie the biggest splash I've ever seen in wrestling if you've not seen this bump you must go and watch it it was amazing and fair fucks to him for doing it it was awesome the crowd goes into a huge Rikishi chant before we see Taz come out with a video camera and smash Rikishi in the head, allowing Val to pick up the 1-2-3. This was a solid match that picked up quite a lot near the end. Good spots, good crowd heat. Not the best finish, but it's a cage match. You can allow it. Backstage, Kurt, uh, Triple H sorry, is looking for Kurt Angle because he's pissed off about all the flowers going to Stephanie. Harvey Whippleman leads him to a room. Uh, he didn't know he was looking for Kurt Angle. He just thought he was taking him to who was sending the flowers. We see Triple H go in. We hear him get beat up and out walks Y2J. Jay McMahon then comes down to the ring. JR informs us this is not on his format sheet for the night, but not in a... Uh, lame shoot way that WCW did and Shane basically calls out The Rock. Rock comes out uh, they explain this is probably a setup. Shane bails out of the ring and then we see Benoit on the Titantron ripping up The Rock's clothes and sunglasses. We then get a video package for Kurt Angle and The Undertaker. Kurt comes to the ring and Undertaker doesn't wait for his music or anything. He's wanting Kurt Angle now so he's straight out on the bike to attack Kurt in the aisle. We get a crowd brawl as is customary with all WWF main eventers in this time period. And back in the ring Undertaker hits a huge boot and an elbow drop but picks Kurt Angle up off the pin at two. He then hits a huge delayed vertical suplex before once again picking Kurt Angle up off the mat at two. In a funny moment that I remember vividly from watching as a kid and funnily enough made it onto the network broadcast I didn't change the camera angle. The second time Undertaker picks Kurt Angle up Tim White's visibly having a go at him and you see the Undertaker just mouth fuck you to Tim White and JR apologizes for that. JR earlier in the night he'd apologized for some of Bradshaw's language in his promo as well um, which led to a funny moment where JR said the Undertaker had a PhD in street fighting and Jerry Lawler quite clearly taking the mickey out of JR's earlier apology said ladies and gentlemen I apologize for that remark. Angle manages to get some offense in now and goes after the legs Undertaker's countering with, punk with punches but Kurt Angle does stay all over the leg. They tell us that in one week's time Raw will be in the Georgia Dome. I never knew that happened so I'll be sure to check that out at some point. Uh, we get a good back and forth with a bit of brawling inside the ring now. Undertaker is on his knees but hits those really cool looking uppercut spots, the rapid fire ones, and gets back up and hits a huge one arm choke slam on Kurt Angle. Tim White's begging The Undertaker to pin him now, but he doesn't. He wants to hit him with the last ride. And I remember renting this uh, video from the store as a kid, and it was the first time I ever saw the last ride, and it was amazing. Kurt Angle took it like a champ. Him and X-Pac really took this the best, but awesome finisher. He picks up the three count with the last ride, and sadly, American Badass doesn't come on. We hear you're going to pay. Obviously, they've not paid the royalties for the network. And watching this back match, everyone, watching this match back, sorry, everyone always called this a squash, and that was how I remembered it too. But coming back to it, Kurt Angle did get a bit of offense in here. It wasn't as bad as I thought, but it was really cool. Still, Kurt Angle knew how to make someone look good. And Undertaker coming back after a bit of a layoff, I was so excited to see him at the time. Backstage, The Rock finds all his gear ripped up in the dressing room, and then we go to a video package of Triple H versus Y2J, the highlight of which was Y2J costing Triple H a match against the Brooklyn Brawler of all people. H comes out to his pre-game theme song, which I always quite liked, and it's time for the last man standing match. As a... Um, 
younger guy watching this show, my me- memory of it was really, this was the only match that I thought was overrated. I never really got into it. And this seems to be the most famous match from the show that everyone else held up as being the best. So I was quite interested to go back and watch this. Jericho gets good offense early on, um, including a springboard drop kick and a dive to the outside um, and a really cool elbow off the top rope before Triple H settles into control, working over the knee and then the ribs. Um, story of the match, he came into the match with tape ribs from a sledgehammer shot and Triple H is going to target those to keep him down. While they're brawling on the outside, a girl in the front row really dates this show for me as she takes a picture of them with an old flash camera. Triple H is still all over the ribs, takes the tape off as well. And Stephanie on the outside is pulling some of those sort of Vince-esque maniacal facials, but she's trying way too hard. She's just got too much going on at one time. She would get better at this in later years, but at this point she's obviously still finding her feet as a heel. Mark decided to go ahead and give a dick move of the week, um, and my notes had the JR and King exchange about the wives, so I'll leave that one out now. And Triple H stays in control with a decent suplex on the outside, Jericho getting up at six. He puts on the abdominal stretch, um, and this is going a little bit slow at this point. We end up with an argument between the referee and Triple H and some good shoves, which is good for some good uh, heel heat with the crowd. Jericho gets a hope spot with a spinning heel kick, but when he goes for the lion's salt, Triple H gets his knees up, which catches him right in the ribs, and locks on a sleeper with a body scissor. Some good psychology there. JR goes into overdrive about how he, Triple H is going to end Jericho's career, which is a bit of overselling, but the match is picking up some steam here. The crowd get really behind Jericho on his next uh, turn on the mat, and he does manage to pull himself up at nine adding some good drama and he starts asking Triple H for some more and then crotch chops him so Triple H nails him with a huge pedigree. He gets back up at nine which infuriates Triple H who grabs a chair hits him in the rib and then the back and Jericho's back on the canvas with uh, JR begging him to stay down. He does however get up and as Triple H goes for a second pedigree Jericho hits a low blow before picking up the chair and nailing Jericho who Ah, sorry, before nailing Triple H, who blades a beauty. He goes down, but he does manage to get back up at 8, and Jericho takes over control for a while. Triple H does his flare impersonation as Jericho whips him to the turnbuckle, and he flips outside. And on the outside, we see Jericho sent into the steps, and Triple H... uh, has his pedigree reversed, and Jericho and Triple H both pick up monitors and nail each other with them at the same time, and both manage to get up at nine. Back in the ring, Jericho slaps on the walls of Jericho. Uh, Triple H taps out, but there's obviously no submission in this match. Stephanie's in, and Jericho puts her in the walls. And in another classic moment of wrestling logic, Triple H gets up, sees Stephanie in the walls of Jericho, and instead of just going and smacking Jericho upside the head, runs to the far ropes to build momentum for that punch. I bet it made all the difference. On the outside, Triple H goes for the big sledgehammer swing at Jericho. You know he's not going to hit it when he swings it properly. Jericho ducks and it smashes against the post. Jericho gets a hold of the sledgehammer and nails Triple H in the ribs with it before Triple H hits a low blow and then sets Jericho up on the announce table for a back suplex where they both go through the table. But Hunter manages to get up at 9 while Jericho stays down, earning Triple H the win. I have to say, watching this back, the match was a lot better than I remember, and I do see why it gets all the praise it does. A little bit slow, as most Last Man Standing matches are. It's one of my least favourite gimmick matches, but this one's definitely a lot better than I remember it. And definitely made Chris Jericho look like a player. I know Triple H didn't put over a lot of talent clean on the up, mostly main event stars, and that was the knock on him for these upcoming few years. But in this match, even in a losing effort, Jericho looked a lot better. So a video package for the main event now, Chris Benoit up against uh, The Rock for the WWF title. And in a really weird line, I hear Shane McMahon say, Chris Benoit and I are just friends. 
I don't know what they were being accused of being, but I found that weird. Cole goes into some describing words on Benoit that include disturbed, deranged, mean, nasty, and I found that really uncomfortable to watch in light of what happened in later years. And as Shane McMahon and Chris Benoit make their entrance, they've got on torn up rock shirts and sunglasses, which adds a bit of heat as well. Shane McMahon's in a really cool pair of retro Nikes, proving that unlike Hulk Hogan, he's not a bandwagon jumping hype beast, and he was in... The the sneaker game all along and the rock comes out with that lovely round world title belt of the 2000s the match starts off really hot as shane distracts the rock and benoit immediately goes for the cross face but the rock does reverse it and hit a cool elbow before we go wwf main event style again and head out for the crowd brawl and the rock starts chasing shane around the ring um he chases him around shane jumps in rock jumps in after him and clotheslines benoit but then the second time around benoit gets a hold of the rock but the rock reverses it and in a really clumsy spot he drops benoit for what's going to be a slingshot to shane on the outside but shane's in the center of the ring so he quickly runs past him gets on the apron so that benoit can be slingshotted into him just look really poor. The Rock starts going for the Crippler Cross face himself. We're off to a really hot start and the crowd are massively into it. Benoit gets back into control and the crowd start with a Shane's a pussy chant and then a Benoit sucks chant. The Rock's back in control in the ring. Benoit's on the apron hanging in over the top rope and the Rock nails him with a huge pump with a lovely sound and that leads us to Lawler and JR's talking up the XFL. Don't think that one will go well. Benoit hits a super back suplex off the ropes and then a title belt shot for a two count as Shane distracted the referee for the belt. Benoit then hits another high back suplex and locks on the sharpshooter, but The Rock gets to the ropes. He then starts to attack the knee and Shane McMahon's constantly distracting Earl Hebner, allowing as many advantages as he can before The Rock comes back into the game with a dragon whip and puts on a figure four, but Shane McMahon distracts the referee, allowing Benoit to get away with the tap before getting to the ropes himself. Benoit and Shane take turns getting a hold of the rock between referee distractions from here and then eventually the rock gets back under control and hits a really cool looking spot picture the big show's alley-oop but he just throws benoit over his head into the ropes gets a two count it looked really nasty the rock stays in control and hits his patented spine buster in the people's elbow but shane mcmahon once again distracts the referee and allows benoit to kick out at two before benoit gets the rock up on the top for a superplex and both men stay down Shane brings two chairs into the ring at this point, um, and as Earl Hebner takes one away and is distracted by Benoit, Shane McMahon runs up behind Hebner and smacks him in the back with a chair. Uh, Rock eventually gets Benoit in the crossface. Earl Hebner comes over to see them, calls for the bell. The people assume that Rock's won by submission, but the Fink tells us that the Rock has been disqualified, and as per the earlier stipulation that Mick Foley said that title could change hands under disqualification. Chris Benoit is your new world heavyweight champion. Replay shows us that Earl Hebner came to and saw The Rock chasing off Shane McMahon with a chair in his hand and that's why he thought that he'd been the one to hit him. And then Mick Foley comes out and tells us that he didn't see a reason for disqualification so he's ordering Earl Hebner to restart the match. Rock tells Benoit and Shane who are in the aisle celebrating to just bring it and we get back in the ring and restart. Benoit hits his lovely triple German suplex and the last one he bridges for a two count. He locks on the crippler crossface, but the rock does manage to get to the ropes and we go to the ending sequence ending in the rock bottom and a three count for the rock. A decent match but it could have been a lot better without the constant interference of Shane. I love Shane McMahon always been one of my favorites but he got involved in the match really often and Benoit and the rock are two guys that could really go. If the rock had the right opponent he was magical. Think to the 2002 match with Brock Lesnar that was just awesome. It's obvious what they were doing here though associating Benoit with Shane McMahon. The 
tandem title change, they were really trying to elevate Benoit up towards a main event level. He wasn't quite there yet coming in, but this match did a really good job of getting him up there, and after the match, The Rock sort of celebrated with the belt lay on the floor. He couldn't get to his feet, and JR sold how close this was and how tough both competitors were. And most importantly for me, coming back to watch a show that I've always considered in my top five pay-per-views, it held up pretty well and I still enjoyed it. So with all that being said, uh, let's go to the wrap-up and see who won this week's challenge. So we go on to the five-point scoring system that we all know and love, starting with match quality. WWF takes this one hands down. Uh, Undertaker and Angle was short but good. Benoit and Rock was good. Triple H and Jericho was really good. Um, the opener was good. The cage match was good. There was nothing bad on the show other than really Taz and Al Snow. As opposed to WCW, that had an awful hardcore match, an awful graveyard match, a waste of time in Miss Hancock against Daphne. The Hogan-Jarrett nonsense non-match. Uh, Booker T and Jeff Jarrett was decent. Booker T and Canyon was decent. And the Cruiserweights were decent if overbooked a little bit. But nothing to write home about on that show at all. No great match on there. Production value goes to the WWF. One show seemed big time and one show seemed small time. Um, cheesy, gimmicked, especially the Vampiro stuff with the Sting clones. It, it was just dull. Crowd heat went to the WWF by an absolute mile. And it's an easy one to tell because they had three times as many people in the arena. So they were hot for everything. The signs were there. They oohed and out at the right times. And pretty much everyone on the card bar Al Snow was over. Characters was another easy one. Um, the WWF managed to elevate Jericho and Benoit in losing efforts on this show. Um, and also Taz, Rikishi, Lita, Trish, all over, even though they weren't the main stars. Undertaker, Rock and Triple H, all very over as well. Whereas in WCW, Booker T and Steiner were elevated to a certain extent at this point. They were on the up, um, same with Jeff Jarrett, but no one really cared about most of the characters on that show. And lastly, storylines. Um, I don't even really need to go into too much detail on this one because the WWF actually stuck to their storylines. WCW told you that everything on the show was a joke and that Vince Russo was the only real part of the show. So it's hard to win a storyline battle when you don't actually respect your own. So with all that being said, we have another 5 for 5 demolition, a whitewash, a clean sweep. The WWF knocks over WCW, which in this time period is a pretty accurate reflection of what was going on. Um, but I did enjoy going back and watching Fully Loaded. So again, thanks to Andy for this request. And Bash at the Beach is one of those historical events that I really should have seen before now. So good to watch that as well for different reasons. I'd like to thank everyone that's been keeping in touch on Twitter and helping out with the show. Um, Sean and Mark for sending in their comments, Andy for the review and for the request of the show, uh, Richie for the banter on Twitter and keeping things interesting. Uh, it's been really good to start to build a little bit of a group of us that are enjoying doing this, so thank you to all of you again. Anyone listening for the first time, um, please stick around. The show is improving week by week, in, in my opinion. Um, production value's obviously gone up, so I'd get a win over my early episodes now. Um, and again, just everyone, let me know what you think about the longer format of the show. The pay-per-views make it hard to confine in, in that half-hour space that we're in before, so it does tend to run a little bit long. I think I've focused a lot on the WCW stuff t today, so rush through the WWF stuff a little bit. Um, the fact that it's 2am on my birthday was um, one issue why I wanted to get through this and get it finished 
as well. So hopefully the show didn't suffer too much, but do give us the feedback on Twitter if you can. Please also share us with other people, help us get the name out there. This is still a pretty new project, but we are hoping to keep it going. Um, we did pass the 200 listens this week, so I was quite happy for that. A lot sooner than I thought I'd get there. Uh, things looking quite nicely, thanks to everyone listening. For the next couple of shows, we'll go back to the short-form format and get back to 1995 Raw and Nitro and continue on that timeline. And then we've got some more big pay-per-view shows coming up as well. And lastly, before I end for the night, I've been involved in a little bit of back-and-forth banter with Mr. Pex from the Raw Attitude podcast um, in regards to him stealing what I think is all my sort of favourite music for his show and taking all the wrestling references out of hip-hop. Um, so I thought I would do one better and find some other music that involves some wrestling references from back in the day and see how we would go with that for an ending this week. Thanks very much.
God, 